invite Steph to come on up for today's scripture reading. Good morning. All right, this is the this is the word of God. Acts 19:1. And it happened that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Okay, Acts chapter 19 verses 8 to 12. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Acts chapter 19, verses 18 to 41. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, <clears throat> but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. <clears throat> Sorry. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! <clears throat> and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? 
Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he has said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. Thanks, Steph. All right. Good morning, everyone. So the last several weeks, we've been looking at God's love for cities and how God wants us as his people to love cities too. And, and we've been talking about what it looks like to do that well. And we've seen that if we want to love our city like God calls us to, we're called to be people who seek the good of the city in practical ways. That we're called to introduce the people around us to God that we're called to be people who give generously, not just of our money, but of ourselves, both to God and to the people around us. And we're to be people who use our influence to love and serve others. And I wanna ask you, what has been your reaction or response as we've been talking about this? Have you sort of felt like, oh yeah, this is, this is plain, this is obvious, I've sort of known this forever, something I do naturally? Has this been like totally new and revolutionary and different for you than, than what you've thought about before? We're wrapping up this series on loving the city today, but I wanna challenge you as we do this, just because we're moving on to a new sermon series doesn't mean that we should stop thinking about these things of what it looks like to love our city well. We have these signs up here with our four core values, uh, things like community and commission and loving the people around us and telling people around us about Jesus and serving the world through calling. All of those are things that tie in deeply with this idea of loving the city. And that if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, these need to be right at the center of what we're doing as a church. So even as we move on to a new sermon series next week, keep talking about these things, keep thinking about these things, keep having conversations with one another about how do we love our city well? What does it look like practically to do all these things? And today, as we wrap up this series, I wanna look at one more thing to consider when we talk about loving the city. And I wanna put it in the form of a question. And here's the question. When all of these things are happening, when we are being faithful at loving the city like God calls us to, and when God is working powerfully through us to change and impact our city and transform lives, what does that look like? What does it look like for God to work through us to transform our city? And to do that, we're gonna look at this story of Paul in Ephesus, and we're gonna see that no amount of opposition can stop the spread of God's word. No amount of opposition can stop the spread of God's word. And we'll see God at work, opposition to God's work, and some lessons for Hong Kong. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you again that you are here right now with us, speaking to us as we look at your word. And we pray that you give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. 
God, we thank you that you love cities, that you have put us in this city to be your hands and feet here. And I pray that we would do that role faithfully and that during this time right now, looking at your word, we'd be equipped to do that job well. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see in today's passage is that God is at work. If you read Acts 19, it's clear that in the city of Ephesus, while Paul is there, God is doing some amazing things. Paul, he's traveling through the region. He comes to the city and he starts preaching. First, he's preaching to just the Jewish people in the synagogue, and then it expands to a wider audience. And he does this faithfully, day after day, preaching and teaching people about God for over two years. And we're told that as a result of his work, Everyone across the region of Asia, which we now know as the nation of Turkey, right? Everyone across the region gets to hear about Jesus. He's in this one city, but through his work, the entire region hears about Jesus. Most scholars believe that if you know the book of Revelation, it's a letter written to seven churches in this area. Most scholars believe all seven of these churches were started during this time, these two years, directly as a result of the work that Paul was doing here in Ephesus. God's doing amazing things, not just in this one city, but in the entire surrounding region because of the work that Paul is doing, faithfully preaching and teaching God's word here in Ephesus. And if you've been wondering the past few weeks, why we're making such a big deal about loving cities. This is part of it, actually. Like if if you're a Christian, God loves cities. He wants you to love cities. Hopefully that's enough to, to get you thinking about how do I love my city? But actually, even if you don't care about cities in and of themselves, if you care about Jesus and you care about people hearing about Jesus and loving him, cities are essential for mission. Right? Paul spends two years in this city that's a regional hub. And during that time, people in the entire surrounding region, what do they do? They, they come to the big city to do business. They come to the big city for, for festivals and celebrations. They come visit friends and family. They, they come take care of government matters. Whatever it is, people from the surrounding region come to the city. And people from the city go out to the surrounding region to do all these things as well. And as people come into the city and people from the city go out into the surrounding areas, the entire area around the city is able to be reached by this message that Paul is teaching and preaching from the heart of the city. If Paul, instead of going to the big city, had gone to a couple small towns around the outskirts of the city and he had taught and preached there, he probably could have reached those towns. But the impact of his work would have more or less stop there. Because the towns don't have the same cultural influence that the cities have. But because he was able to reach the city and and transformation was happening in the city, it trickled down into all the surrounding area as well. God uses Paul's consistent, faithful proclamation of his word in the city to draw people to faith in Jesus from all around. Cities are essential for mission. And as Paul teaches in Ephesus, notice how he is teaching and preaching. It says that he is reasoning with them and persuading them. Reasoning with them and persuading them. He's not just saying like, hey, there's this guy named Jesus. You can sort of take him or leave him, whatever. No, he's like, here's why this matters for your life. 
Here's why things will be different for you if you actually trust in Jesus. Here's why the things that you're trusting in right now are not enough and you need something greater. He's trying to show them Jesus is exactly what you need for everything you're looking for in life. He, he's aiming for, for deep transformation where people are uprooting whatever they've been relying on in their lives before and replacing that with Jesus, which is something for us to think about. Are you faithfully telling the people around you about Jesus? And if you are, are you giving them good reasons for why Jesus really is what they need in life? That's what Paul did and God used it to work powerfully among the people of Ephesus. But it wasn't just his preaching that was making a difference in the city. There was even more happening. We see in verses 11 to 12 that God was doing extraordinary miracles in the city through Paul. We know from Acts chapter 20 that while Paul lived in Ephesus, he was working to support himself financially during this time. So we know from other passages, his job was a tent maker. So Basically, what they believe happened was during the morning and evening hours in Ephesus, people would work, and then in the middle of the afternoon, it would get so hot, it was too hot to work, so everyone would go home, take a mid-afternoon nap, and then come to work when it cooled down again. And so Paul, in the mornings and evenings, would make tents, and then in the middle of the afternoon, while everyone's napping, that's when he would do his preaching and teaching, because the lecture hall was empty, because they were all home napping. And he could rent it out for a probably cheaper price, and have access to this great space where he could tell people about Jesus. But in the mornings and evenings, as he would do his work, he would have an apron that he would wear to protect himself as he's making tents. He would have some sweat cloths that he would wear to keep sweat from dripping into his eyes. And what would happen is when he would finish work, he would take these things off and people from around the city would come and grab his sweat cloth, you know, dripping wet with his sweat. And they would take it to their sick relative and they would touch the relative with this cloth. And the sick relative would get better. That's crazy, right? Like Luke actually wants us to recognize this is not the way God normally works. Even for someone with extraordinary ministry like Paul who did amazing miracles, this is not normal for him, right? That's why, Paul, uh, that's why Luke doesn't just call them miracles. He calls them extraordinary miracles. Even for someone as, as amazing and powerful as Paul, this is not standard run-of-the-mill miracles happening. This is something special that God is doing in this season to bless and expand the work that's happening in Ephesus. God is doing incredible miracles to help this work spread and expand because he is working powerfully in this city. Which raises a good question. Can, can God do miracles as crazy as this today? Yeah, absolutely he can. But since these are extraordinary, not run-of-the-mill miracles, should we be expecting him to do stuff like this on a regular basis today? Probably not, right? Like, it wasn't even normal for Paul. For Paul, this was weird. For us, it's, it's going to be weird. If it happens, it's going to be probably a rare thing, right? If you see preachers online or on TV who are like, I have this special handkerchief, I blessed it, send it to your sick friends, and it's probably a scam, right? Because this is not, Luke is telling us, this is not the way God normally works. He can do it. He did do it right here. He could do it in our day, 
but it's, it's not the standard way God works. God is giving a special blessing to Paul as he's working in Ephesus because he wants to do amazing, incredible things in this city. And as God's word is preached faithfully in Ephesus and God sends these incredible miracles to bless that work, what happens in the city is that people begin to experience deep life transformation. We see this in verses 18 to 20. It says, many people who used to practice magic arts, they came and confessed their practices. They brought their magic books and they burned them together. And God's word continues to increase and spread across the city. Scholars think that well, they know that, that magic spells were a huge industry in Ephesus, right? It, in the ancient world, people would use this term Ephesian writings to refer to magic spells, right? It, it was just what the city was known for. And they believe that these magic spells were sort of like birthday wishes. You know, when you make a birthday wish, you can't say it out loud because if you say it out loud, it won't come true. Right? The magic spells in Ephesus, they were secret things that each magician had for themselves. And you couldn't tell anyone else what it was because if you did that, it would lose its power. But what happens as Paul is teaching and preaching there is these former magicians are becoming Christians and they're recognizing this magic stuff used to have me trapped and Jesus has set me free and I don't want to be trapped by that anymore. So they came and they started telling everyone, here are my magic spells. I'm robbing them of their power by declaring them publicly to all of you so they can't do anything for anyone anymore. And you might be thinking, oh, that's so silly. We all know there's no such thing as magic. But realize what's happening here. These are people whose lives, whose way of seeing the world, whose source of income was all built around this magic system. That was how they made their fortunes and they are leaving that behind, turning their back on it completely to follow Jesus instead. Can you imagine if all the fortune tellers on Temple Street just packed up their shops and were like, we're done with this, we're following Jesus instead? It'd be crazy, right? But that's what's happening in Ephesus. God is working at such a deep level in the city that people who have built their livelihoods around things that he says are wrong are turning from it so that they can follow Jesus instead. And to show that they're completely done with their old life, they burn their books. They realize the things in these books, they held us captive. And these books, they're really, really valuable. We could make a lot of money selling them to other people secondhand, but we were trapped by these books for so long and Jesus has set us free. And if we sell them to someone else, yeah, we'd get money, but then other people would continue being trapped by them. And we don't want that because we love these people. So rather than selling them and letting other people be trapped by them, we're just going to toss them on the fire and let them burn. And it says that the value of these books was 50,000 pieces of silver. I did some quick math that could be slightly off, but my estimate is that in Hong Kong dollars of today's money, somewhere in the vicinity of 37 million Hong Kong dollars worth of books that they burned. This is not a small thing. This is a massive industry-wide purging of these magical books. God is working powerfully in this city. 
The city is going, undergoing deep transformation at every level. It's not just like people are showing up for church on Sunday. It's that the way society works is being reimagined from the inside out. That's what happens when God works in the city. And the transformation is, is so deep that the core institutions of the city feel threatened. There are these silversmiths who, who make silver shrines of the city's like, patron god, Artemis. And these shrines, they're objects of false worship. People would buy these shrines and present them to Artemis at the temple. And as the city is being transformed and people are turning to Jesus and trusting in him rather than false gods, the business of the silversmiths is suffering because no one is buying their shrines anymore. The the revival across the city, it's putting wicked businesses out of work. Can you imagine what that would look like in Hong Kong today? If people trusted in Jesus so deeply and on such a wide scale that businesses that promote wickedness had to be put out of business. What would it look like if, if the drug dealers in Hong Kong had to start finding other work because no one wanted their drugs anymore? What would it look like if the brothels in Hong Kong had to shut down because the word of Jesus is transforming people and there are no more customers to fill up the brothels? What would it look like if financial institutions that just trap people in debt and oppress them had to close their doors because the people of Hong Kong were being so transformed by Jesus that we were helping lift one another out of debt And these institutions had no more business oppressing the poor. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be great? Isn't that something you want to see in our city? The the power of the gospel to transform lives and transform societies at such a deep level that you can actually see it reflected in wicked businesses having to close up shop. I don't know about you, that that gets me excited, the idea of that being a possibility in our city. Can you imagine what Hong Kong would look like if God worked in our city in that way? I don't even know if I can because it's so different from anything I've ever seen in Hong Kong, but it would be great, wouldn't it? But before you get too excited imagining this, I have to let you know, this passage also comes with a warning. Like, yes, God can and does do amazing works of transformation in individuals and in cities. And in my mind, this type of change is something every single person should celebrate and long for in the city. People being set free, people finding new life that they never thought was possible. But the reality is that when God works this way in a city and people are set free, not everyone's happy with it. Some people, like the ones who profited off the affected industries, they actually feel threatened by it and they have this need to fight back, which is exactly what we see happen in Ephesus, which brings us to our next point, opposing God's work. Because we can see opposition to God's work in Ephesus start pretty early in the passage. Paul, when he first comes to the city, he starts teaching in the synagogue. He's there for a few months. And then all of a sudden he has to leave because people there, it says, become stubborn and continue in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. They refuse to listen to Paul. And it's not just that they refuse to listen to him, but they start spreading nasty rumors about Paul and other Christians to try and stop him from speaking. 
Now, of course, we see in verse 10 that God is working through this and he actually uses that opposition to bring Paul to a new place for teaching and preaching that expands his scope of his ministry and allows him to have an even wider impact. So God works for good through it. But that doesn't change the fact that if we are seeking to live faithfully to Jesus, if we're seeking to faithfully tell others about him, we will face opposition. And of course, this opposition in the synagogue is not the only opposition Paul faces in this passage. Because God's working through Paul. God is transforming lives. God's transforming the entire city. And this man named Demetrius, he sees everything that's happening and he realizes, I'm in trouble. Because Demetrius is one of the silversmiths. And the spread of Christianity across their city, it's impacting his business. His business is in danger because of the church. And he's afraid for his future. And because he's afraid, he feels the need to fight back, to do what he can to stop the spread of this good news about Jesus. So he gets all the craftsmen who are going to be sympathetic to his cause, and he gives them a pep talk, convincing them all, we need to stand together in opposition to what God is doing in this city. And from what happens next, from his conversation with them and the results of that conversation, we actually get to see key insights into the strategy of opposition to God, the heart of opposition to God, and the bulk of the opposition to God. And we see in this passage how it plays out in Ephesus. But I think as we dig into it, you'll notice these are actually patterns that tend to repeat themselves over and over throughout history. See, first is the strategy of opposition. Opposition to God's work appears altruistic. It it looks like it's trying to seek the greater good. On the face of things, Demetrius, when he talks to these people, he presents himself as someone who's primarily concerned with the good of his friends and his city. This isn't about me, guys. This is about our love for our homeland. Look what he says in verse 27 in his speech. There's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her, her, her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. He gives three reasons they should oppose Paul and all of them are things that are pointed towards the greater good. First, he says to this group, all of you guys have your reputations on the line. Historically, people have looked at you and the work you've done, and they thought you were a great person because of it. But if Paul has his way, people are going to look down on you. They're going to think less of you for the work that you do. And I care about you guys. So I'm coming to you guys, and I'm warning you because I care about your reputation. We have to stop Paul. Second, he says the temple of Artemis might become counted as nothing. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a type of thing that could draw people from all around to come to your city. And when they come to the city, they'll spend money there that supports the city's economy. It just makes people think well of your city to have one of the wonders of the world there. If the temple of Artemis becomes counted as nothing, that's going to be a big hit to the city's overall well-being. It's going to mean a loss of income, a loss of prestige, That's not good for the city. And so he tells them, hey guys, our sense of civic duty, our love for our city, it compels us to oppose Paul in the work that he's doing. And then he warns them that Artemis might be deposed from her place of magnificence. 
Remember, Artemis is the main goddess of their city. She is the one who's supposed to watch over their city and protect them. If she loses her magnificence, if she loses her power, then is she going to be able to protect us and provide for us? If we care about the good of the city and we want our children to have a good future here, we must oppose Paul. This has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with my love for the greater city and the greater good. All his arguments are designed to show them that Christianity is fundamentally opposed to everything they stand for as a city. And if they really love and care about their city, then they need to fight against this new faith. He comes to them telling them, I care about the greater good. And that's always the strategy of opposition to God's work. You claim to be working for the greater good. But when you look a little bit closer, you can see there's actually something else driving him. And that's the heart of his opposition. Because even though he appears like he's concerned for the greater good, the heart of his opposition is selfish. Notice the first thing he tells the craftsman in verse 25. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. His opposition to the work of God in their city, it's all about money. You know, if this new Christian religion wanted shrines of their own God made out of silver and he could get business from them to replace what he's lost from the sale of Artemis shrines, he'd be fine with that because his business is still going well. He doesn't actually care about Artemis. He just cares about the fact that when people leave Artemis, he's losing money off of it. And he's smart. He realizes if I just tell people I'm concerned about me losing money, they're going to be like, well, quit your whining. So he covers himself. He makes it appear like he cares for the greater good because he knows that'll get sympathy and that'll get people on his side. But at the heart of the matter, he's selfish. He doesn't care about the fact that people are being set free by this good news about Jesus. He doesn't care about the fact that the things that used to trap people are no longer trapping them and keeping them enslaved. He doesn't care about the fact that his selfishness will trap them again. No, he actually wants them trapped and enslaved because when people are trapped and enslaved by these things, he makes money off of it. And so he is willing to, to put people in a position where they're relying on these gods who cannot protect them, who cannot satisfy them because it means more money in his pocket. And again, this is typically how opposition to the Christian faith works. People say they support things that oppose Christianity because they care about human flourishing and the greater good. But in reality, the motivations are all selfish. Right? I mean, think about the pornography industry. How do they market themselves? Hey, hey, we're concerned about the greater good. We want people to be able to, to, uh, to release their sexual urges, even if they can't find a partner willing to have sex with them. Now, the Bible says to look at a woman with lust is sin. The Bible is opposed to this message. They're opposed to the Bible, but they say, we're doing this for good. We're doing this to help people. And yet, as they do that, they fail to mention the fact that pornography use drastically increases your odds of cheating on your spouse. So pornography destroys marriages. 
They fail to mention the fact that porn is harming people, real people in the real world, because it's one of the leading causes of human trafficking in the world today. They, they fail to mention the fact that pornography is addictive, that it enslaves people. They simply appeal to a concern for the greater good, for human well-being, that, that if you use our products, it will help you. They ignore all the downside. You know why? Because pornography is an industry that earns 97 billion US dollars a year worldwide. There's a lot of money. Selfishly, they want that money. They know if they just appeal to the money, people will be like, oh, that's horrible. So they cover it and make it look like they're pushing for the greater good, but they're not. They just care about money. If there was no money to be made in it, they wouldn't be promoting it in this way because they don't actually believe it's for the greater good and they don't actually care about the greater good. Our world is no different than Paul's world. People who oppose God, they package their selfish desires in nice packages that make it seem like they care about the greater good, that make it seem like they care about civic pride, all the while pushing things that oppose God from totally selfish motivations. That's the heart of opposition to God's work. So we've seen the strategy of opposition, the heart of opposition, and then third, we see the bulk of the opposition. They are clueless. See, they have this meeting, news starts to spread around the city, people join into this mob as they run through the streets, praising Artemis, and they rush into the theater that can hold 25,000 people. They have a massive demonstration there for several hours. And during this demonstration, they're chanting as a group, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over for hours at the time. And Luke tells us that most of the crowd that's joined in and is chanting and is furious is completely clueless about what's happening. Most of the crowd is completely clueless about what's happening. They just know that everyone around me is outraged. So I should be outraged too. That's the right response in this situation. I don't even know why we're outraged, but I know I'm supposed to be angry, so I'm going to be angry. Does that sound like our world? (laughs) That's exactly our world. The bulk of the opposition, they know they're supposed to be angry. They know they're supposed to be opposed to this whole Christianity thing, and they have no clue why. Can you think of someone you know in your life who's like, I could never be a Christian, I would never be a Christian because I know that being a Christian would make my life worse. And they don't even know what Christians believe or how their life would be different if they were a Christian. They're not willing to listen because they know that I'm supposed to be outraged at this whole Christianity thing and how horrible it is. They don't actually know why they oppose it. They just know I'm not supposed to be for it, so I'm not willing to give it a chance. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, is that an attitude that sometimes describes you? That you're so convinced that Christianity is wrong, that if someone tries to talk to you about it and tell you what it's really about, you won't even listen? If that is you, I want to challenge you. What are you afraid of? You know, if Christianity is really wrong like you believe, then hearing someone try to defend it it's not going to shake your unbelief. It's actually going to further solidify it because you're going to have a clear understanding of the ways that it's wrong and why you shouldn't be believing it. There's nothing to be afraid of if it's really wrong. 
But if it's true and it's right, don't you want to know? Like if this message about Jesus can really transform your life and give you freedom and hope and joy like the people of Ephesus found in this passage, isn't that something you want to know about? This crowd, they're angry, they're furious, and they have no clue why. So they just keep shouting and shouting and shouting so that no one can talk to them. No one can try and tell them why they should calm down. And it's not until one of their town clerks comes and gives them this talk about the danger they're in for rioting that they finally calm down and go home. And that's the passage today. So I want to look at that and talk about a couple lessons for Hong Kong that we can take away from this passage. You know, what is it that this story about God's work in Ephesus has to do with us in another part of the world 2,000 years later? How can studying this help us learn to love our city today? The first thing I want us to see is that deep gospel transformation is possible. The gospel has power to transform individuals and the city on a deep level. This good news that Jesus came to earth as God in human flesh and that on the earth, he lived a perfect life that we could never live. And he died the death that we deserve. And he rose again in victory over death. And he gives us forgiveness for all the things we've done wrong and new life and the ability to have a relationship with God. That message, that good news has the power to transform individuals and cities. Now that work of transformation, it's not quick work. It's not easy work. But God's people living faithfully to him and proclaiming his message faithfully, it can transform individual lives and entire cities. Now, I know from firsthand experience that when you read a passage like Acts 19 and you hear about that massive transformation in the city, it can be really easy to get discouraged and to become cynical and be like, is that really possible in today's world? Come on. I mean, have any of you ever seen the gospel transform an entire city on the scale that's, that's described in this passage? I don't think so. I haven't either. I mean, maybe on a more personal basis, have any of you experienced this type of transformation and new life in Jesus in your own life? I mean, I think most people here would probably say we're Christians, that we believe in Jesus. But if we're honest, our lives are busy. And when we're busy, one of the first things to get dropped is typically time with God. And when, we, when that happens, we start to operate on this shallow spiritual level ourselves. We're not having this deep connection with Jesus. We're not having our lives transformed by him. Even though we say we're Christians, we've been going to church for a long time, it doesn't feel like there's anything really different about us from all the non-Christians we know around us. And if I've been a Christian for this long and I haven't really had my life transformed like the people in this passage and I don't know what that joy and hope feels like, why should I believe that someone else is able to experience it either? It's so easy to slip into cynicism and doubt and disbelief that God is able to work in this deep transformative way. And it's particularly easy because it often isn't necessarily a conscious thing. It's just sort of 
a subconscious thing that's, that's operating in the background, guiding the way we look at the world without us even being aware that that's it. But when we stop and think about it, we realize, man, I've become cynical. I've stopped believing that God can really transform lives. And if that's happening to you, it's likely that something other than God has begun to be the thing that you're counting on each day to get you through the day. Because we saw at the start of our, our service today, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. If we're running through life hectically, trying to just squeeze every moment out of every possible second that we have to do as much as we can and never stopping to just rest, then we're being guided and controlled by something other than Jesus. We're not actually seeking to find life and freedom and hope in him like this passage calls us to. It's likely that like the people of Ephesus, we've started to rely on some false God in our lives to get us through the day. And if that's the case, then we need to to reject those false gods and turn from them and place our hope in the real God ourselves in order to find that transformation. But this story about Paul's time in Ephesus, it tells us that it is possible. It might be difficult, it might be slow, but it's possible. And notice what happens in Ephesus. It's not just that a bunch of people pray a prayer so they can go to heaven when they die. It's not just that a bunch of people show up for church on Sunday. It's that they have a life-changing encounter with Jesus that, that sets them on an entirely new trajectory for life, that transforms them from the inside out and overflows in a way that transforms the world around them as well. That's the power that this good news about Jesus has if we let it do its work in our lives. So let me ask you, do you believe that God can really change our city? Do you believe that God can really change you? If your answer to either of those questions is no, I want to encourage you, take some time this week to talk with God and tell him you're sorry for your cynicism and doubt and ask him to to change you. Ask him to give you hope that he really can work in you and in the city. So that's the first thing for our day that we learn from this passage. The gospel has power to transform individuals and cities. Second, we see we can't make this transformation happen on our own. And obviously that's true on the level of like, we need God. We can't change people's hearts without him. If we want to see this work happening in our city, we need to pray like crazy. That's obviously true. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about when I say we can't do this on our own is that if we want to see God work in this way in our city, we need Christians from around the city and churches from around the city working together to make it happen. See, the story in Acts 19, it centers around Paul and his influence on this revival in Ephesus. But Paul is not the only one making this possible. If you go back a chapter, we see that that some of Paul's colleagues and friends, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, were all in Ephesus starting this work before Paul even arrived on the scene. Without that preparation work, Paul would have been far less impactful when he got to the city. And we see that as this revival is happening in Ephesus, actually, Paul is relatively stationary, just staying in Ephesus the whole time. But the word of God spreads to the entire region. 
what we now know as the nation of Turkey. How does that happen? How is it that, that Paul has such a big influence staying in one place that this word of God can spread to the entire region? Well, it's because he wasn't working alone. Everyday people like you and me were taking this message they heard from Paul and carrying it with them as they went on business trips and visited family and took holidays in all these different areas of the region. One person, even someone as great and powerful as the Apostle Paul, they cannot make this widespread work of revival happen on their own. If we want to see this kind of transformation in our city, it requires buy-in and collaboration from Christians throughout the city. So what could this look like in Hong Kong today? Let me give one example. Students. I mentioned last week that the way our school system says you're only as valuable as your grades, that that's unjust, that that's something that as Christians, it's good to be fighting against. Now, if you try and fight that on your own, how much impact are you going to have? Not much. But if you and a group of Christian friends just keep reminding one another in front of the other kids in your class, hey, God loves you and you are valuable regardless of your grades. If that becomes like one of the things that your group is known for saying over and over to one another until you guys really start to believe that it's true, what kind of an impact could that make on your classmates? If they see that, hey, there's this group of kids who don't actually get as stressed as everyone else when exams come up, because they know that their identity is secure even if they fail. That's going to change things in your school in a way that none of you could have on your own. By working together with other Christians, we can accomplish things for God that, that are greater than the sum total of what we could each accomplish if we were working on our own. So let me ask you, what are you doing to contribute to the spread of God's word in our city? And who could you be partnering with to work together to help spread God's word even more widely? So that's the second thing we see is that we can't make this transformation happen on our own. And the third thing I want us to see for Hong Kong today is that great works of God will face great resistance. Jesus tells us in John 10, 10, we have an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Our enemy hates, hates, hates to see people flourishing and finding life and being healed. And when great movements of God come to a city like they did in Ephesus, that's what happens. People begin to flourish and find life and be healed. And so our enemy does whatever he can to stop it. In Ephesus, it was a riot. He wanted the Christians to feel like you're in danger if you keep following your God. At other times in history, there have been laws that ban people from being Christians or from gathering as a church. There can be full-on persecution where people are rounded up and sent off to jail or executed for their faith. It can happen in different ways at different times. But we have an enemy who's going to resist the work of God when he sees it happening. Jesus says, if we want to follow him, we need to count the cost. And the same is true here. If we want to see a great work of God in our city, we need to count the cost because there will be great opposition. It won't be easy. 
And we like things to be easy in our world, right? We have the iPhone so that life can be easier. We have microwaves so we can cook a meal in two minutes. That's never been possible in the history of the world before, right? Why in a world that loves ease and convenience so much would we face this hard path and aim for deep gospel transformation that, that changes the city from the inside out when we could take easier paths? Well, we do it because Jesus took the hard path for us. He didn't just risk inconvenience or potential danger to rescue us. He left the comfort of heaven and came to earth knowing it would cost his life, willing to take the hardest path of all and sacrifice everything to rescue us. And he did it willingly because he loves us. If we understand what he sacrificed for us and what that sacrifice involved, it's gonna make us willing to sacrifice and take the hard path for the good of the people around us in the city. And we also do this because of hope. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the Bible tells us that the work we do here to love and serve the city and to seek the transformation of the city, it will never ever be wasted. You know why? Because God himself is building a perfect city. And in that perfect city, his people get to live in perfect well-being for eternity. Yes, we will face trials and opposition in trying to give people glimpses of that city here and now. But God promises that as we live faithfully for him, he's going to re reward all those efforts and that our future is in that perfectly restored and redeemed city that we are aiming for right now. So church, God can and does bring deep transformation to individuals and cities through this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. That work of transformation, it is awesome. It is powerful, but it's something we can't bring on our own. We need God's help and we need the help of one another and other Christians throughout our city. And if we're going to bring it to others, we need to experience it ourselves first. But just because God is working, it doesn't mean things will be easy. It's going to involve opposition because we have an enemy who hates Jesus and who hates us, who wants to see us trapped, not free. But we can keep loving the city. We can keep seeking its good because Jesus loved us first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love cities, that you transform cities, that you transform people, that you bring hope and freedom where there was once bondage. God, we pray that that would be the reality that we get to see and experience in Hong Kong. That you'd be transforming us from the inside out, making us into people who are full of hope and joy and love, even in tough times. And we pray that our city would be a place where the gospel takes such a deep root that, that the tra trajectory of our city is changed by it that businesses that profit off wickedness would have to close because people don't want their business anymore. That people would love and care for one another and seek the good of one another. And that your name would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.